Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 4-317 of the Run Run Live podcast. I hope you're doing well and enjoying your summer or your winter if you're on the other side of this rock that we live on. Today I'm going to change up the format a wee bit because I can. Hope it's not too jarring for you. Because it's my podcast and I can do whatever I want with it. But it's not about me, it's about you, and I hope you can get something, some small glimmer of insight into your own soul from listening to me do things and talk to people and ask questions. That's my purpose here. That's how I I get my fulfillment. I use my, albeit miserably poetic, communication skills and my passion for endurance sports, my love of learning, to give you the spark to do your own thing and have your own adventures. I'm the poster child for proof that every man can work adventure and learning and struggle into his life. And if I can do it, so can you. And I don't care if you give audible.com your credit card. I don't care if you get your razors and ointments and unguents from Harry's. And I don't care if you use Stamps.com or LegalZoom or MailChimp, although I think MailChimp has a better sense of humor than Constant Contact. I just want you to get up off your bum and do something, learn something, feel something, live, have an adventure. So anyhow, I'm going to lead right in today with my interview with Tim Lee, who qualified for Boston just recently using the plan that I laid out in my latest book, Marathon BQ, How to Qualify for Boston in 14 Weeks with a Full-Time Job and a Family. This is not intended to be self-promotional, don't get me wrong. It tickled me to death the way that he was able to do this, but I thought you folks could gain some value from Tim telling you he didn't think he could do it, but he did. He took a leap of faith, he went outside his comfort zone and surprised himself. People always act like there's some sort of secret, some sort of secret code to running faster. And there really isn't. All you have to do is consistently run more volume and more quality. It's like that answer that nobody wants to hear, right? That's it. There's lots of plans that embody this. Actually, most plans embody this. And my philosophy, a little bit different, was to look at that concept and distill it down to the simplest 
most direct path from where I was to where I wanted to get to, which was a qualifying time. And after Tim, I'm going to give you my overly long race report from that Olympic distance triathlon I did after we last talked. I might even sneak in some music because I feel like it. A little treat, a little treat for you. (laughs) And again, I don't do race reports to be self-congratulatory, although it does help to clean the cobwebs out to go back and sort of live through it again. I do race reports to understand that truest crucible of our sport where that daily mental and physical training meet the reality of race day, right? Where the rubber meets the road. It's where we're laid bare. And I wrote most of this uh, from a hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, where I was hired by the local shadow government to take care of a couple of bad apples. And it was super, super duper hot and humid down there. Uh, Coach was, well, he is, I had a build week, he was ramping me up, and he had me doing an hour and 30 worth of work every day, and it was super hard to squeeze in, because even if I got up in the morning, you know, it takes, it's still 80-something degrees out, and 98% humidity, and it takes 30 minutes to stop sweating after you run, and your clothes never dry, I mean, never, you you know, I wear the, the tech stuff. The even the my anti-fashionable short shorts don't even dry in in that climate, and it's super icky. I w- wasn't going to climb back into wet clothes, so I, I actually had to wash them out in the tub and then dry them in the hotel laundry room. But and my hokas are the worst because they're totally stinked out and slimy. They just never dry it all week, and it's not pleasant to have to climb back into those. I had an interesting on the way back to the airport. I figure I I'd squeeze in. A run because I was trying to get on an earlier flight. I couldn't get on an earlier flight because we got done early. So I stopped at the Gateway Center, which is the convention center uh, near the airport. You can stop there when you come back from the rental car. They have a Marriott there. And I said, hey, I'm a uh, Marriott Platinum member. Let me use your gym. And I went in and changed and went out and ran an hour and a half at about, I don't know, two o'clock in the afternoon yesterday and it was uh like 90 something degrees full sun down camp creek parkway probably not the smartest thing i've ever done i didn't stop sweating i I don't think i've stopped sweating yet but it didn't kill me and i got my workout in and the other thing i've been working on is uh trying to get eight, get eight hours of sleep and i know i hint at being a bit of a wizard at time management but having such long workouts and having to, you know, having to work all day and do all this other stuff that I do, and then trying to get enough sleep is kind of killing me. <laughs> if I get up at the crack of dawn to do it, you know, then I'm barely getting to work on time, and I have to go to bed at 9 o'clock. And if I do it after work, well, now it's time for bed by the time I stop sweating. So I'm not getting anything done. But I'll just keep plugging away, keep smiling. I've been testing out uh, bat backgammon apps on my iPhone. <laughs> And you kids may not believe this, but when I was in college, we didn't have a TV in my in our apartment. I lived with three other guys, and let alone internet or cell phones. Those things didn't exist. And my roommates and I, we would have epic card games. We'd play bridge, we'd play hearts, and we'd also play a lot of backgammon. So I like playing backgammon. And what I like about backgammon is it's essentially luck-based, right? You have to have a little skill, but it's not chess. The first app I downloaded was 
fine. But after a couple games, I figured it out. It was very timid. It was very risk-adverse. It made poor decisions because it avoided risk at all costs. Yeah, there's a metaphor in there for you. And I was able to beat it, you know, 9 out of 10 times because I took calculated risks. And I finally just deleted it because it was boring to win all the time. So you don't want to be like that. You don't want to be too timid or risk-adverse because that in itself is a risk. Then I got another game that was totally the opposite. It just blitzkrieged me every game. And frankly, I couldn't win. The closest I ever got was to be up eight games to two, and then I lost that match 15 to eight. So I deleted that one too because I think the dice were rigged. Again, it's not chess. Skill level can only affect the luck of the roll so much. It's statistically improbable that I could lose nine out of ten games. Now I'm testing out one that's playing against other people on the web. So, you know, if you want to play backgammon with me, look me up. (laughs) It's slow, but, you know, and you have to be online, but at least it's real. I think it's real. You never know. And that's the way life is, right? You're never going to get anywhere unless you take some risks. It's the fine art of balancing risk and return that makes the chaos livable. Just make sure you're not overestimating the risk, because I think that's what most people do. They overestimate the risk and they underestimate the reward. Really, what's the worst that can happen? Roll the dice. On with the show. And now for today's featured interview. So where are you? You're out in PC, right? Or yeah, I'm, I'm uh, in a suburb of Vancouver um, called Richmond. So I, I live in a, a small area, a fishing village called Steveston. And if, uh, if anyone has ever heard of the show or if you've ever heard of the show Once Upon a Time, it's actually filmed in Steveston in, in my neighborhood. So that's our claim to fame. There's all sorts yeah. of celebrities walking around all the time. And, now I've I've been chatting with Erin on and off. Yep, yep. For, for like seven years, she was one of the first people in our little Twitter clique back in the day when Twitter first started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can remember talking to her. I think I actually had a phone call with her sometime. I was giving her some advice on some sales job or something. Oh, really? Okay. You know what? <laughs> and it's it's funny because I was I was scratching my head thinking I'm sure I've met Chris before. And I thought it might have been one of those rock and roll events because I traveled all over the place um, chasing that that rock star medal um, in 2010. And uh, and I swear I must have met you along the way or somehow along Twitter as well. Maybe we communicated. I'm not even sure. Yeah. I'm sure our paths have crossed. Probably. Yeah, I'm one of those guys. So anyhow, you uh, you qualified for Boston recently, huh? Holy cow! I know. Can you believe it? <laughs> is that the first? Is that the first time? It is the first time. Yeah. So so what what uh, what time did you need? Um, I needed three twenty five. Um, so, so you're. I'm in the forty. 40. Uh, yep, forty five to forty nine. Okay. Uh, age group, and I need all right three twenty five, and I ran a three twenty one oh two. So well, that should be enough, right? Uh, minutes. Knock on wood. That's what I'm hoping for. I don't want to have to try this again if I don't have to. So had you tried before? I had. Um, now, it's probably been a few years, but I had I had chased Boston for probably a good, well, two and a half, almost three years from about 2008 to 2011. And I got, well, I got to about... Um, I'm just trying to think. I got to 325 and change, and at the time, my qualifying time was, I think, 320. 
Right. And then I think they right around that time, soon afterwards, they changed the standards. They lowered the standards. Right. They took five minutes away. They took five minutes away. Exactly. Well, actually, six minutes because they won't give you the 59, the 59 seconds. 59 seconds. That's right. Yeah. And so that dream just kind of fizzled when, um, when I was four minutes away, uh, when it became nine minutes, I kind of thought, you know, I'm going to try out cycling now and see how that is. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take up golf, yeah. lawn bowling. Yeah. And so I did. I started cycling um, uh, probably about around the same time, around 2010. And I'm still, I still cycle. Um, and I even fit it in during my training. Yeah, I was out today for a good hour and a half, not out in the road cycling. Oh, uh, great! It's it's um it's good to cross train every once in a while, let your body recover. And uh, yeah, if you just pound the roads all the time, you end up injured. You know, I was I was very cautious of that, um, just trying to balance it and, and not burn myself out. Although I was pretty tired, I have to admit. Um, so when you were when you were training before chasing Boston, you know what? I guess five years ago. Why couldn't you attain it? Um, you know what? I think that uh, you, you learn. And I think that it was just part of the experience of running. Um, I think for myself, uh, I've, always, I've always run. And it was uh, up to that point, it was always 5, 10, um, half marathon uh, distances, but never the full distance. And I ran my first marathon in 2009. And so training began in 2008 and everything was new. Training was new, uh, you know, looking for the right program that I thought would, one, just get me to the finish line. Um, and then once I got a, a taste for that finish line, then I started thinking, okay, maybe I can drop my time and improve. So then I started chasing different um, programs. So what, what was your first uh your first marathon that you tried, you know, that you tried at? What did you come in at? Um, I ran a 342. Uh, yeah, which is close, you know. Yeah, that's close, and that's kind of how I thought too. I was actually pleasantly surprised um, that I was able to to finish in that time because I had no clue. Uh, it being my first, right, I right. Like, and you probably you pr- you probably crashed hard in the last six miles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I've, I've seen that wall unfortunately too many times, um, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know I think after after that first one I kind of got the bug and. Um, you know, I found, you know, I, I saw the enjoyment of it, um, and, and the fun of training. I had a, had a, a training partner that I was running with and him and I, um, did a couple marathons after that. And, you know, then we'd overanalyze our finish times and, you know, what went wrong and what can we do to improve? And so we'd prepare for the next one and adjust our training plans a little bit that way. Um, but we were kind of self-coached and self-taught and, yeah, see, when I did the same thing, but, you know, for me, it was back in 1994, um, I did the same thing. I ran my first race and came in, like, in that area somewhere, you know, three 345, something like that, and it made me really mad oh, because I, cra- I crashed really hard. Like, I did everything wrong and crashed really hard, and I knew in my heart that I was, you know, that I could run a Back qualifying it. time and that I just hadn't, I hadn't given it. You know, I hadn't I hadn't given it a worthy shot. You know, I'd screwed up. I was really angry at myself. Mm-hmm. So that's where I came up with that marathon BQ plan. You know, I went out and researched and said, how do you know? First thing you do is you say, how do the the other guys do it? And all the classic, you know, seventies and eighties runners that I, you know, that I knew, mm-hmm. you know, the big guys, what they did to run fast marathons was first thing they did is they ran like one hundred and twenty miles a week, which I wasn't going to do with my job, you mm-hmm. know, traveling. And the other thing they did is they did a 
ton of speed work, you know, to bring the to strengthen the legs and and learn the discomfort and you know bring their their paces down. So I kind of mixed up a plan around that. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Yeah. Right. So, so again, instead of saying, "Here's how fast that your time say you should run," you say, "Okay, here's the time I need. How do I get there?" Absolutely. Right. Which is a different. You know, most of the plans go well. Based on your 10k time, you're here. You know, mm-hmm. and then they set all the paces that way. Whereas you say, "Well, that doesn't really matter. I need this time." Yeah. <laughs> and you set all the paces that way. So you took. Aaron, your your wife, I'm I'm assuming. Yes, that's right. You guys have the same last name. That's right. Probably, I don't know these days. You never know, especially in Canada. Yeah, we're you know? crazy over here. We're we're far crazy too progressive. Socialists, yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, she gave you my uh, marathon BQ book plan, and you kind of sort of followed that. You know what? To a T. All right. Um, believe it. I, I, you know, it's a, it's a testament to you know the the possibilities of the plan. Um, and what, what resonated for me was just really the simplicity of it. Like you said, it's not so much a matter of, um, you know, what time are you, what time are you running right now? And, you know, here's a plan that will improve. Um, you kind of worked backwards from that and said, this is the qualifying time that I need. Here's the paces you need to run. And here's the training plan that if you follow it, and it, it, like I said, it was a very simple plan. I can pretty much memorize and recite the plan, looking at it constantly. Um, it just made it a very simple approach to um, trying to qualify. So do you have a local uh, track that you can access? I do, um, but the, we only have one in the area, and it's used by everyone in the community. So everyone walks, um, runs, uh, they run forward, they run backwards. It, it's just chaos there. And so um, I have a nice um, uh, route without any lights, without any traffic, um, that it's, it's a dike that uh, is, surrounds the, um, our city of Richmond. And so it's flat and I can run on it and I can set up my, my intervals um, in Garmin. And so I would just change whatever the number of intervals I had to do in that particular day. Um, I would just change it and it would remind me and tell me when I'm, when I'm to start, when I to, when I can stop, um, when I can rest, that sort of thing. And I, so yeah. I did that instead of actually on a, a physical track. So was it a hundred percent flat or did it have some, some roll in it? What was the surface like? It was, um, it was a hard pack, uh, rocky trail. Um, and it was flat. Um, yeah. where, where I live in Richmond, we actually live three feet um, below sea level. Yeah. And so we have this dike, essentially, very much like in, in, in the Netherlands, um, that surrounds the city sure. and protects the water from coming in. So on, sure. on top of that dike, we have this wonderful running and walking trail. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect, right? And uh, I had the same thing. One At one point, I worked in this job where there was a sort of a – a dirt road in the woods that just happened to be like a three quarter mile loop. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry, a mile and a quarter loop. Perfect. Which was a dirt road. It had some rollers in it, which was okay. Yeah. But it was perfect because I just do the, you know, I do the 1600, then recover, then do it again, then recover. It was it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in the woods. And same with us. Um, there are there are streets that lead up onto the dike, and they're stretched 800 meters apart. 
Oh, perfect. It, I, in, in some instances, if I would ever forget my watch or not charge it or whatever, I knew exactly how far I needed to run. So I got so many questions for you. So did this is a fairly challenging plan. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it um, is. Did you feel like you were breaking down, you know, towards the, you know, the, the eighth or ninth or tenth week? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was, um, and I think Aaron will probably attest to it, where I would just come home physically spent and not be able to walk a flight of stairs or, um, you know, or my legs burn as I'm walking a flight of stairs. And I'm wondering, how am I supposed to get to tomorrow's run if I can barely walk up a flight of stairs? So, yeah, there were some really challenging moments in that sort of, like you said, eight to eight to ten uh, week yeah, because it's it gets me a lot of volume and a lot of quality, especially with that long run on the on the Sunday. Yeah, and you know, in practice, I've played with all that stuff, and you can cheat on some of the long runs. You know, you don't you don't have to. You know, when I did it originally, I did all the way up to two twenty sixes, and I'm not sure what did I put in the plan a twenty four and a twenty four. Uh, yeah, it was a twenty two and a twenty four. I think it was. Yeah, twenty two and a twenty four. Which is plenty, but just for my head, I wanted to do the distance, so I did a 26 and a 26 mm-hmm. with a one-week taper. So I was way overtrained. Yeah. And when I ran that first qualifying race, it was just easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was easy. I finished with so much left in the tank um, at a, and I ran like a, I don't know, a 309. I needed the 310. I mean, how'd you feel at the end of your race? Um. I was pretty relieved that I that I ran the time I wanted to, but I was darn tired. It hurt. It hurt. Did you have any Did you have any wall at the end? You know what? I didn't. Um, and part of I think why I didn't was because I've been there before, and that race experience. I've hit those walls at at the six mile. I've hit hit it at the three mile mark, and I remember that feeling and I never forgot it. And that was something that I was anticipating and preparing and waiting for, but it never came. Um, so I never hit a wall. Right. And the, and the other thing I found is doing those, those hard 1600s and, and getting through that schedule gives you a, a certain amount of comfort or even arrogance yeah. when your body starts to talk back to you. You're able to say, no, I know what this is. Yeah. I think if anything, it was it was that reminder of you know what I've hurt a lot more than this because of the, that Tuesday session or that Thursday session. Um, you you don't forget your body remembers that you know what this marathon is going to hurt and it's hurting, but I've I w- I've hurt a lot more in, in training leading up to this point. Um, right and yeah and that was and I think that for me was the difference was um, those Tuesday and Thursday um, speed sessions. It really kind of uh, differentiated from all of the previous plans that I had done. I, I guess, in hindsight, looking back, I, I didn't really follow them as closely as I followed this one. And you know, I've tried all sorts of different ones. I've tried ten in ones. I've tried the Hansen method. I've tried, you know, over, you know, overrunning and running to fifty k. I've run a, a test race at four weeks out a full marathon at four weeks out and it tried different ideas. And every, every time I would blow up at six miles or blow up at, at three miles. 
so like I said, this, this program really just kind of changed my, my approach to, to speed work. Um, and I was very diligent about, you know, following them. So, um, when you got out there, were you able to do the 1600s at plan pace right out of the, right out of the gate or did, did you have to sort of warm up to those? I definitely had to warm up to those. I would probably say the first few weeks there, there was some self doubt creeping in that how am I supposed to run this pace? I can, I can barely hold, you know, one mile or sorry, yeah, 1600 at that, at that pace, just one rep or one, yeah, one, one set of them. So yeah, there was some, some self doubt, but then I started coming around and I also found a running partner that was, that was running a similar plan, but he, he was training for Ironman, but he was faster. And so he, he kind of was my rabbit for a lot of those Tuesday sessions, which is perfect. Yeah. So the Tuesday ones are the ones that never really get easy. They get they get executable, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they get manageable because you know what the pain is and you can do it. Yeah. You know, you, you lose the doubt. Um, but still, there. I used to be, you know, I used to hate going down for those sessions because <laughs> it just hurts so bad. Yeah, and that's that's what I I used to dread as well. But but the Thursday night sessions, the tempo sessions, those start to actually get a little bit easier towards the end. And you start to say, "Huh, I wonder why these used to be hard." Yeah, um, you know, I those t- Thursday sessions, being able to run that pace was manageable. Um, it was just more about the volume, right? And getting right. that volume up, right? Right. Those last. So if you're doing eight of those, those last three are ugly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah your, your legs are dead. Yeah, and that's the whole point of being able to hold that discomfort and run in that discomfort and uh, and then finish strong. I mean, that's the whole point, right? So you know, like you said, I, what I because I travel and I have just sort of a brain where I can do the work. Just tell me what I need to do. Yeah, I distilled it down to here's the simplest way to do this. Right, because a lot of the plants will go. Well, you're going to do 300. You're going to do 600. You're going to do, you know, hill repeat. You're going to do fart legs. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I can't. I I got to go to work, man. Yeah. I only got an hour and a half a day. Yeah. I don't want to think about this. I just want to do it. Right. Absolutely. And that's that's exactly how I felt about this plan. Was that it was very simple. Just mentally, I didn't have to overthink it. I I knew what the task at hand was, and I didn't have to, you know, double check and check and double check. Uh, what it is I was supposed to do. I just knew. You, you look at it once and you know. So did you um, start picking up some some tendonitis again in that sort of seven, eight, nine week? Uh, you know what? Uh, no, I didn't. No? I was, you know, in in my old age, uh, I, I really started to stretch a lot more than, than I really ever have in the past. And I took stretching very seriously, so that made up a good portion of my of my downtime. And and you know what, I it, it really did help. You know, help me avoid injury. Right. So you didn't get any like uh, sort of minor calf strains or that sort of thing. Typically, you know, when you're going that hard on the track, you'll tweak something. Right. It mm-hmm. may not stop you, but it you know you typically come out of it with something a little achy. You know what. Didn't happen to me. I've I've had oh, I've had pr- in previous training programs. I've had all sorts of calf issues, hamstrings. But I remember my physiotherapist telling me that you know Tim, if you would just simply stretch more, you wouldn't have to come and see me. And this is as he's as he's putting um, needles into my hamstring 
and it's uh, I call it convulsing, but it's basically twitching to release the, yeah. the tension in the muscle. IMS therapy. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's excru- it's excruciating. And when he told me that, I said, I don't ever want to see you again because I never want to feel that pain again. <laughs> so I'm going to stretch, and and that's yeah. what I did. I just stretched and stretched and stretched. Yeah, and as long as you make it a routine, so you're doing it before and after every workout, you can stay ahead of the injuries. Absolutely. I mean, that that was something that, uh, like I said, I had gone through all of the the running related injuries that everyone has probably had: plantar fasciitis and you know Achilles strains and hamstrings and you name it, runner's knee. I've kind of been through all of them early on. On wood, I think I've been injury free for a few years now. So what did you find for the um, the calorie burn? You know, again, when you get into that those big weeks, right? Those that 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 third wave, you're burning some serious calories, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's and it's hard to keep up. You know, when I did this, I was a lot younger, so I didn't really worry about nutrition. Mm-hmm. I just ate whatever I felt like and as much as I wanted. Yeah. But if I if I had to do it now, I would eat a lot cleaner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> by no means am I the model of uh, nutritional perfection, um, by any means. But there's one thing I did enjoy, and that's smoothies. I I, yeah. I eat a lot of smoothies, and I wasn't sure. I can't recall if it was in your book or if I read it somewhere that if you just simply make a smoothie before your workout and have it ready for the end. Yeah, I think I said that. Did you, yeah. did you say so that? Um, yeah, so you have it in the car. Yeah, have it in the car, or it's in my fridge waiting for me, as opposed to. Um, having to, you know, when you're physically exhausted, having to throw, throw something in the blender and, and try to make something, you don't have to think about it. It's there, you grab it and you, and you're ready to go. Yeah. So. You can get it back in, but you, you look like a pretty skinny guy anyhow. Yeah. I'm, I'm small frame. I'm, I'm definitely, you know, people say, you know, I have a body or a build for running marathons. So if I can, if I'm supposed to have the build to run marathons, I figure I should at least give it a go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think there's more to it than build, but you know, build helps. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not built for it myself, but uh, I fake it. I got a good engine. So it sounds like you had a pretty positive experience, and you you know you followed it to the T and got the results you wanted. I mean, five minutes under your qualifier is uh, is a significant. Um, yeah, that's significant. Is that the pace that you were targeting? Yeah, it was. In fact, my okay. my finish time target was 3:20, right? And so I ended up with a 3:21:02, so pretty close. Yeah. And uh, the only thing that I that I didn't know, and then basically uh, I, I ran. It was kind of a trail race. It was a light at the end of the tunnel. It's a fairly fast course in North Bend, Washington. And unfortunately, the the race markers stopped at mile 22, and so. You're in a trail. Your GPS is not really telling you exactly how many kilometers or sorry miles you've run, and so I was just running for time. And so I was my target was 3:20. I was going to run to 3:20 um, based on that, and I just counted down. I knew I had 15 minutes to run, or 10 minutes to run, or three more minutes. Yeah. And yeah. once I got to that 3:20 stage, um, I was already uh, racing towards the finish line. So it, it was it was good. It was perfect. Yeah, and one of the things I found with the you know the the track workouts and the um, the sixteen hundreds was it gives you like laser control of your pacing. Yeah, like you without a watch, you you can tell exactly what your pace is. You know, by effort level to pace. Yeah, and you know what that that's so true. The the race that I did, 
uh, the first two and a half miles of the race is in an abandoned railway tunnel. Pitch dark, you have your headlamp on, and you have no idea what your pace is running through the tunnel. And you're, you're in tight quarters with other runners, so you're kind of going with whatever the pace is. And I was able to manage that and hold the pace that I wanted to. I was, my plan was to run 730s and repeat 730s, so I gave myself a cushion 720, or sorry, 730 to 740 miles. And I was running that through the tunnel in complete darkness. Yeah, so, yeah, because you you just burn it in, you burn in the mechanics. Yeah. So then, you, so then you were doing your speed work at what at uh, like six thirty five and six oh five. Yep, yep, right around those numbers. Yeah, yeah, which is that's pretty peppy. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't think I could do it to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> when I started it, just looked like such a ridiculous number. Yeah. Well, what I tell people to do is just go to the track and run that that first straightaway without looking at your watch, mm-hmm. and then check the time. And most people would do that in like a five minute mile, you know, like a five thirty, because it's you know it's not hard to run fast. It's just hard to Sustain run fast it. over a long distance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right? Yep, you know it. So you could run that pace. You just have to learn how to spread it out. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then when you watch watch these elite runners that are doing it and then you start to break down their their pace and then you you break it down to a a, a, a 100 meter um, pace and it's mind-blowing how fast they're running just 100 meters 420 times if that's is that right yeah. math or is it 4200 times 420 times um, yeah it's amazing it's amazing how fast those guys go and their form is perfect and it's just and they're they're tiny guys too they're like 110 pounds all leg yeah, yeah. So, yeah. That, to yeah. me, just doesn't seem healthy at 110 pounds, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, that, some are less than that, you know. Yeah. Those are the big ones. But anyhow, so you were successful. I'm so happy. Thank you. Thank you. And you know what? Um, I was I was really coy about it because I didn't want to start broadcasting the fact that I was following your plan just in case I didn't fail. I didn't want you to be <laughs> or, or blow up, right? Or blow, or blow up and, <laughs> and then have to get onto Twitter and blame you for it. But <laughs> I was pretty fortunate. It all worked out for me. And I did it actually on my birthday. So that's awesome. Yeah, and that was the other thing is that I didn't want to put additional pressure by the fact that I was running a marathon on my birthday and for the sole purpose of trying to qualify for Boston. So So you're gonna so is this for this is for next year? For twenty sixteen, yes. Twenty sixteen. So now you guys gotta pack up and fly out to Boston. Yes, we are already talking about it, already looking at at how the heck uh, we're gonna manage that and uh Wonder where the heck are we supposed to stay? Yeah, we're completely well, lost. Uh, I mean, we wouldn't have any. We have no idea. <laughs> so I might yeah, be calling you again. <laughs> yeah, I'll help you out, but uh, you'll figure it out. It's fun. It's a blast. All right, I'll let you go. Uh, I'll let you go to sleep, or anyhow, get, get, get dinner. Re- get ready for dinner. Yep. Yeah. All right. Say hi to Aaron for I me. I will. Thanks for uh, chatting, and All thanks right. for your Cheers. help. Bye bye. It's when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. This is the real Massachusetts Olympic triathlon report. Now, there are no sandworms, but it was a good day. Being as non-OCD as they come, I figured I could plug the race start address into my iPhone and it would get me there. The race venue was a state park, 
of some sort in Winchington, Mass., less than an hour from my front door. And with an 8 a.m. start time, I figured if I left before 6, I'd be okay. The advantage of my laissez-faire approach to race planning is that I don't have to worry or stress out about detailed stuff that's mostly out of my control. The disadvantage is that sometimes I get bitten by some of those pesky details. And as it turns out, 399 Baldwinville Road in Winchington is an empty patch of road in the woods. And 399 Baldwinville State Road in Winchington is where the park was. It was okay, I had plenty of time, and I was in the right general area. I did manage to convince myself to pull all my race stuff together the night before and put it in my truck, and that gave me that peace of mind in the morning that I wouldn't be showing up without a pair of shoes or without my helmet or something. I was still into the venue with more than an hour to spare. Unfortunately, that little bit of misdirection put me into the park the same time as everybody else, and it was a 20-minute wait to get a parking spot about a half mile away from the beach. It was okay, still an hour to gun time. I took a quick inventory and realized there was probably no way I could carry all the stuff I had with me and the bike. See, this is another one of those OCD triathlete things where they have some sort of intricate carrying system or giant roller bag for all their stuff. I decided I'd ride my bike down to the beach, register, use the Porter John, rack my bike, and come back for the rest of the stuff. It was okay. I still had some time. It didn't take long at all to pick up my registration, but it took noticeably longer to get into the Porter John, which I was desperately needing as the large Starbucks coffee was kicking in. I was starting to get jittery with all the hyper-serious triathletes milling around with all their expensive kit, but it was okay. I still had 45 minutes. I went to the transition area with my old Fujisan, definitely starting to feel more like a fish out of water in the melee. The bike rack with my number range was totally full. Several serious guys were building their little campsites and giving me the stink eye as I circled looking for an opening. It was like trying to find a seat on the subway during rush hour. And I'm pretty sure these guys were camped out like a Black Friday sale to get those coveted first couple bike slots. This is so not my tribe. There were people on their bikes and in the water already warming up when I got there an hour before the race. I finally just gave up and racked my bike in that open overflow rack at the end of the transition area. It wasn't at all important to me where my bike was racked, and it was seemingly very important to everyone else. Seemed like a win-win to me. I'd just stay out of their way. Most of these guys were going to be long gone from transition when I got done with my swim. It was starting to be not okay. I was inside 45 minutes to gun time, and I had to hike the half mile back to my truck to get my stuff. I had made the tactical mistake of wearing cheap shower sandals, I kicked them off and started to barefoot jog back. I figured I'd get a warm-up in, too. And I was starting to get flustered. I get my arm full of miscellany from the truck and hustle my butt back down to the beach. Twenty or so minutes to gun time when I get back to the beach. I figure I'm still okay because I'm in the fourth wave. The waves go off in four-minute increments. I don't actually need to be ready to go until 8.16 or so. And in my head, I still have over a half an hour. 
And when I get back to transition, it's empty. And they're calling my bib number over the, over the announcements. I drop my crap in a heap and go find someone to tell me why they're looking for me. I figure they saw my bike, and they're going to disqualify me for uh, faulty equipment. So the lady in charge tells me my bike is racked in the wrong place, and I'm going to be disqualified unless I move it. And I tell her my assigned rack is full, and I'm not that competitive, and I don't mind being at the end. She will have none of it. She shoves the bikes like hangers on a coat rack to make room and shoves my bike into the end spot. Now I'm definitely not okay. I'm stressed to the max, and people are yelling at me. The volunteers are yelling at me to get out of transition. I'm like, why? I'm not in the water for 30 minutes. And they tell me that it'll screw up the timing, which, being a race director, I know is bullshit, but I'm flying around trying to lay out my crap and get into my wetsuit. And the guy next to me, whose bike used to be on the end of the rack, shows up to check something and sees that his bike has been shoved, and he gives me a look of death. Hey, it wasn't me. I didn't want to. She made me do it. He's pissed. I'm so stressed out now, I tear some new holes into my wetsuit, putting it on. I can't find my chip. My heart is pounding. I'm running around like a headless chicken. They are still yelling at me, like some bizarre reality TV show. A nice volunteer lady defogs my swim goggles for me and sprays some suit lube on some of my sticky points. And it's going to be okay. I've got my stuff laid out, my suit half on, and I'm into the staging area before the National Anthem plays. I've done triathlons with Max Performance, the outfit that is managing this race before, and they are very well organized. Maybe a little too aggressive and obsessive in the details, but that's triathlon. Lake Denison is a nice-sized freshwater lake. The weather calls for it to get hot and humid on race day, but in the morning it's still cool, about 70 degrees, slightly overcast. There's no wind down by the lake, which sits in a little hollow or valley surrounded by forest and hills. And standing on the beach, you can see the counterclockwise one-mile loop they have laid out. Large inflatable yellow and orange buoys mark the corner turns, and it always seems like a long way to swim when you see it laid out like this. You're used to swimming out and backs or laps in the pool, and it's hard to visualize a mile in the water until you see it laid out in a lake. And I know the bike course is 22 miles, and the run is a 10K, but as is my habit, I haven't looked at any of the course maps, and I'll just take it as it comes. And you might say that my willful disregard for race planning is foolhardy and cost me precious seconds. I would counter that I care more about the precious seconds I'd waste worrying about race tactics if I did look at the course map. My approach makes it more of an adventure. I embrace the chaos of race day ignorance. Or maybe I'm just lazy. This puts me into psychological conflict with 90% of your triathletes who love to immerse themselves in the wonderful details of preparation and equipment and nutrition, whereas I just train and show up. The water temperature is announced as an accommodating 74 degrees, which is perfect for my full tri wetsuit. Most of the participants have full suits on. Some have the sleeveless versions, which, thinking about it, probably means they have multiple wetsuits for the different occasions, which impresses me as the type of financial excess that typifies the sport. 
I don't see anybody without a suit. I'm in the fourth wave, which I think is 45 to 59-year-old men, and we have red swim caps. I find my way to the back of the milling throng on the beach. I haven't zipped up my suit yet because I'm still sweating profusely from running around the setup area like a maniac. There's three waves in front of us, and directly in front of us are women in pink caps, and directly behind us are women in yellow caps. I close my eyes. I breathe deeply. My heart calms. I remember that this is just a fun race for me. I've never done an Olympic triathlon before, and therefore I already have a PR. And before you know it, I'm relaxed and happy. I look around, but no one really seems to want to chat. The pink wave goes, and I zip up my suit. The first wave is rounding the midpoint of the course when we get ushered into the shallows. The water is cool and refreshing, even with the wetsuits on. And there's some sort of signal, and we're off. This is the easiest start to a triathlon I've ever been in. The course is nice and wide, and there is very little washing machine. In the sprint tries I've done before, you get the crap kicked out of you for a good 5 to 10 minutes as people thrash around jockeying for open lanes. I settle right into my stroke. The water is nice and clear, and I can see the people around me. The sun isn't high enough yet to give any glare. Whatever the lady put on my goggles is working great. They aren't leaking and no fogging. I start to get a little foot cramp early on, probably from my barefoot jog back to the truck, but I just relax and breathe, and it shakes itself out. I'm so calm and relaxed, it's almost like a nap. There's enough guys around me that I don't have to sight much. I can just stay with them. I'm not having to jostle for a position. I can maintain my nice, relaxed, three-stroke breathing pattern with a nice long glide, and the boys are big and clear and easy to see when I do sight, so I hardly have to break form at all. I'm not breathing hard or struggling. I don't know how else to put it, but it's just relaxing and enjoyable to be out there gliding through the cool, clear lake. Every once in a while, I'll swim into somebody's space when we corner a buoy or, or feel the vortex coming off their feet, but I'm so present that I can play with it without breaking form. About 800 meters into the mile swim, we simultaneously overtake the straggler pink hats and are overtaken by the lead yellow hats. And one of the lead yellow cap women literally swims right over me. I mean literally. She puts one hand on my ass and levers herself right over me with one stroke. As we're coming into the beach, the water's so clear I can see the bottom. And looking around, there are still red caps around me, and some of them are standing up too early. I stay in my stroke until I touch the bottom, because frankly, I'm enjoying it. I'm not tired at all. Standing up in the water, I take a glance at my watch and am thrilled and a bit baffled to see 29 minutes and change. Based on my sprint triathlon times, I figured maybe 40 minutes, but yay! Now I can walk the rest and still be happy with the race. I jog into transition one, all smiles, thanking the volunteers, and generally cheery. I only trained with one swim a week over the last eight weeks or so, and most of those were open water with the suit on. My Garmin was telling me that some of those were close to two miles, but I didn't believe it. Either way, I wasn't afraid of the distance, but I honestly thought it would be a lot slower. It's amazing how my body remembered the form, and I fell right back into it without much training at all. 
My transition strategy, like my race planning strategy, is antithetical to the triathlon zeitgeist. I simply ignore the transition and take as much time as I need to get myself centered and set. I move quickly, but I don't rush. The people who win these races get in and out of transition in 30 seconds. I do it in two to three minutes. Climbing out of the wetsuit is much easier than I thought it would be. I put on my bike shoes, a bandana under my helmet, a bike shirt, and take the time to get my sunglasses on. I take a couple of long swallows of Genucan, I unrack Fujisan, and head for the exit in a leisurely three-plus minute transition. With such a wonderfully easy swim, I am not at all worried about the bike ride. I'll just spin it out like I always do. But from the beginning, my legs are heavy, and I feel like I'm pushing through cement. It's some combination of the old bike not spinning freely, even though I cleaned it for the race, and my old legs not having their usual pop. I might be imagining it, but it feels like there's a little headwind when we get out onto the highway. The bike course is mostly a big two-lane highway with extra wide shoulders. I get down into the aero bars and try to spin, but it feels hard. I did most of my training on flat courses, and the rolling hills feel harder than they should. Not terrible, but not the kind of aggressive power that I'm used to when hill climbing on my bike, especially in a race. And I decide to make up some time by shifting into my big ring on the downhills. Now, to understand why this is a risky proposition to use all my gears, you need some key pieces of information about my bike. It's a 15 or more year old steel Fuji that I bought to commute to work on. It's not a tri bike, but it works fine for me because I'm not so concerned about my speed. And it's very rugged. I put clip on arrow bars on it so I can get down into tri position. And it fits me very well. But it's quite heavy, and it's getting a little long in the tooth. I have the old Shimano Lollipop Speedplay pedals with the clip-in shoes. And I was probably the only one there with a luggage rack. It also has had most of the drivetrain replaced over the years. It started out as a two-ring front. But I've had to replace both the rear cassette and the front rings multiple times. They don't make the rings or the cassette that came with it anymore, so I've had to Frankenstein in approximate replacements. What this means is now I have a three-ring front chain ring, and the good news is that it gives me more top-end speed on the downhills. The bad news is that the old two-ring derailleur doesn't quite match the three-ring setup. Thus, when I decided to use the third ring to make up some time on the downhills, it comes with some risk and requires a bit of shifting finesse. The first couple downhills, I'm getting great velocity, and I'm passing people. And then I get greedy, and sure enough, it overshoots the ring and drops the chain. No problem, but I have to stop, put the chain back on, and I don't learn my lesson. I do it again. Now my hands are all greasy, and of course, I cut my hand on the chain ring, so I'm greasy and bloody, and I'm losing ground. I ended up dropping the chain three times before I learned my lesson and just stayed in the middle ring. The highway wasn't bad riding. It was open to traffic, so there were cars there, like a 50, 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. And the breakdown lane was super wide, like 10 feet wide. And people were naturally drifting over into that right lane to stay out of the car lanes and riding there. But it was also a highway, so it was full of debris. So I tried to stay on the white line. 
the road conditions were pretty good, except for a couple of patches. Uh, one notably around mile 13, I slammed into a giant sinkhole in the road on a downhill, and I thought I blew a tire, or at least bent a rim. But everything seemed to hang together. Every once in a while, a competitor would whiz by me on one of those super fancy carbon tri-bikes with the disc wheels, and they make such a cool noise. They sound super fast. But I had to wonder just what these people did wrong to own such a nice bike and be passing me this late into the race. Did they spot me an extra 20-minute head start to make it more competitive? I made sure to keep slugging away at my bottle of Ucan because I knew I had the run coming up and I'd need the energy, and I drank all 24 ounces, and I could have used more in the heat with the effort, but it wasn't sitting very well in my gut, especially as the day started to warm up. And I ended up cruising into T2, fairly disappointed with my ride. With all the training I've done in the aero position over the last three years, I'd expected to do much better. Again, I took my time in transition, slipped into dry tech socks, into my hokas, put on a racing singlet, a running hat, sunglasses, and that clip-on bib belt that triathletes used. And I grabbed another bottle and was out the gate in two minutes and change. The 10K run course was an out-and-back contained pretty much entirely on the park roads with rolling hills and plenty of shade. And it was still early, just after 10 a.m., so the sun was still low, but you could feel the heat coming on. And I felt bad for the the back of the Packers. The winners were coming through the finish as I was heading out. And it was cool to see the leaders in full-on suffer mode coming down the road towards you on the uh, out and back. As is common for the last leg of a triathlon, uh, I felt like crap in the early part of the run. My legs were heavy. My heart was jumping out of my chest. My breathing was ragged. And I did not see how I could do six more miles of it. So I just focused on what I could control and relaxed into my form and kept lifting them up and putting them down. And as much as I was suffering, I was passing people. What I noticed was that these people were just bad runners. I don't mean they weren't fit. They were probably fitter than I was. But they had awful form. And they were just trudging along like they knew the run sucked, so they were just going to go through the motions and not try. And they also weren't dressed for it. It was a hot day. They weren't wearing hats or sunglasses or carrying any hydration, and most of them had those minimalist racing shoes, and I couldn't help thinking that a couple sessions of form coaching could do a lot more for them than those fast shoes. They also had no sense of tactics. I made sure to stick to the shade when I could, but they were just mindlessly staying in the lane. Uh, just before the turnaround, there was a sizable hill, and I must have passed a half a dozen people just by knowing how to run a hill. There were two aid stations that you passed, both on the way out and the way back, and they were offering water and sports drink and some sort of gel and cold sponges. I wasn't about to put any sugar on top of the U-can that was rolling around in my gut. I was dehydrated, but I knew I had enough gas to finish the race, so I poured the water on my head and squeezed the sponge out on the back of my neck and kept going. Coming back up the hill, I walked a couple of strides to see if I could get my legs to shake out a little, and it worked. I was picking up the pace heading into the finish. I saw the six-mile mark on the road, and I could see the beach through the trees, and I did my best impression of a kick and passed a few more people, expecting to see the finish shoot as I rounded the next corner. 
And much to my chagrin, I kicked a little early because when I turned that corner, there was just more road, and I had to dial it back a bit. But no one had any interest in catching me, and I managed to hold it through the shoot for a 7.53 average pace, which I'll take. I'll take that on a hot day at the end of a triathlon. They had a nice ice-cold commemorative bike bottle full of ice water for you with your medal in the chute. And they also had a nice spread of watermelon and grapes and other fruit. And it's good to see race directors are getting the memo about having some healthy choices at the finish. And, of course, it was a burger truck there with a giant line of triathletes waiting in front of it. You know, so, sigh. I chatted up some folks. I drank a lot of water. I was down a few quarts. I collected my stuff and pedaled back up to my truck. And after stashing my stuff, I rode back down to the beach to take a picture and check my results. They had this great device where you can enter your bib number and it prints out a slip of paper with your results on it, which was pretty cool. I ended up coming in at 2 hours and 35 minutes and 30 seconds, which I was thrilled with. This put me 28th out of 44 in my age group, 246th out of 455 overall, 181st out of 283 in my gender, squarely in the back of the mid-pack, I had estimated based on my sprint times that a 2.45 would be a good finish time, so I beat that by 10 minutes. Looking at the results, I knew a bunch of people in this race and never saw them. My friend Eric Manzer, who we've interviewed on the podcast before, uh, I introduced him to running 15 years ago, and he did it in 2 hours and 11 minutes, and he's legally blind. The winner did it in an hour and 46 minutes. And the guy who won my age group did it in two hours and four minutes. The only person I actually said hi to was Brian Lyons, who pushed Rick Hoyt at Boston this year. And that's only because I passed him in the 10K. The fun thing about triathlons is that you get to do some Monday morning quarterbacking. So looking at my times, you know, I could have moved up 10 places in my age group with a decent bike ride and a fast transition. But that thought process leads to triathlon madness. Looking at my placing, I guess you could say that it was a fairly competitive field. It seems like an easy course, too. I felt very good about my fitness. There was never any kind of bonk or power loss, and I was working maybe 75-80% effort level the whole way. The longer format seems to be much less frantic than a sprint try, and I quite enjoyed it. I wasn't super sore the next day, but I knew I had raced. And of course, I set a personal record. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. There you go. Another race in the bag and another podcast in the can. The triathlon had some nice swag, too. I got a bottle. I got a shirt. I got a nice medal with a bottle opener in it. And a nice... I got all kinds of great stuff. And, uh... Yeah, it was pretty nice. I have some new electrolyte replacement stuff that I'm testing, too. Seems to work pretty well in the heat. Sits in the stomach lightly, which is good. Whenever I start testing any powder-based drinks, I always mix them half-strength to start. So there's a tip for you. When somebody talks you into taking some Ucan or some, whether it's Gatorade, whatever these powder-based drinks, you know, you mix them with water, they always come with one of those big scoops in the can or the bag. Only do half a scoop when you start using it. So this way, if it's going to give you trouble, you'll you'll be able to ease into it, right? Even start with a quarter scoop so you get used to it. I like UCAN, gener- Generation UCAN. 
but it doesn't sit super easily in the gut, especially when the weather's hot, even though I have a really strong gut. I've, I've never had any instance of uh, losing my drinks or anything else running. Never, never done that. But it does get a little rumbly down there, and it can be naggy. It can be an annoyance during a race when you have to think about, well, I'm, this might be the time. And I'm gearing up my fundraising for the Hood Coast Relay. You may have seen some of that kicking around the social media webs this week. I'm doing that at the end of August. I'm taking a whole week off. A whole week. <laughs> I say that like everybody in the world doesn't take a week off in the summertime. Like it's something special. I got to check my priorities. And I'm going to meander across the country from South Dakota to Portland, Oregon with my wife. And our marriage has survived 30 years, and we'll see if it survives this. <laughs> um, you know, you, you can tell from listening to my race report that I'm one of those non-planners. I'm a planner, but I'm not, not a, a detailed planner. So uh, I think she may uh, suffer from a little bit of that. Uh, what do we do now? I don't know. Where are we? I don't know. <laughs> All right, so check out uh, the, any page of my website, runrunlive.com, for the Hood to Coast Donation League. I really could use your help. Remember, it's seven years worth of ad-free podcasts for you. The least you can do is throw 20 bucks towards cancer research. I mean, it's cancer research. It's not my personal hot tub and floozy fund. I don't see any of this money. It goes directly to the Portland Cancer Research Place, where they do the cancer research. I, I assume it's a bunch of smart people sitting around with test tubes. I don't know. Like I intimated last time, I'm going to uh, bail out of that mountain bike race in August. Instead, I'm going to go up to my buddy's house for a uh, thing he does called the Beer and Bike Weekend. So that sounds like much more fun. And then I'm going to run another relay with my club called the 100 on 100 in Vermont, which is basically a one-day uh, relay race. And I'll do three legs of like 10K in the mountains. So they needed some help. So I pitched in. I do that sometimes. So I'm not sure if I'm going to, what I'm going to do in the fall. I have a one eye on my heart to see how much of the AFib is gone and whether I'm going to be able to push it or not. Right? If I push it, maybe if, if my heart's better, maybe I, I'll take it up to the next level. Meanwhile, my garden is producing beans and red raspberries and black raspberries like there's no tomorrow. I've got a few apples. My squash, my peppers, my tomatoes, they were a bust this year. Never made it. The body count on the backyard vermin stands at three juvenile woodchucks, three bunnies, a raccoon, and a gray squirrel. I still haven't caught the mama yet, but my parsley is starting to grow back unmolested. And finally... <laughs> I say that, but I probably don't mean it. And finally, after my run last Sunday, I took out my chainsaw and I went out into the woods and I cut that oak tree that was hanging across the trail, the one that knocked me off the head and broke my teeth. It is no longer hanging over the trail. It is cut and stacked in my backyard. In February, when it's zero degrees out here, I can have a nice fire and think about that tree. So don't forget to say yes to adventure and sign up for the Wapak Trail Race on September 6th at the Windblown Ski Area in New Ipswich, New Hampshire. And join me for some mountain running smackdown fun. We added a Facebook page and a Facebook event for it. So that's in the show notes or you can just search for it. It's Wapak, W-A-P-A-C-K. 
One of the things that frustrates me is when people have an attitude of scarcity. I spent a lot of time talking to my team about this this week. Scarcity is really a form of fear. It's a low-level fear that comes from the fear of not having enough or losing what you have, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And when you have an attitude of scarcity, you actually invite scarcity into your life. You know, my parents were Great Depression-era people, so they always had this low-level sort of fear of scarcity that sort of colored everything they did. But in reality, you're born with everything you need, right? Everything else is gravy. Life is not scarce. Life is abundant. And I see people acting out of scarcity, and they tend to hide. They tend to hold back. They tend to hoard. They don't move out of their comfort zone because of that low-level fear that they might lose something. So scarcity ends up eating you alive. The way out of scarcity is very simple. It's just to move. Even if you don't know where you're going, even if you don't know your purpose, even if you don't have any discrete goals, just move. Roll those dice. Pick a direction and move. And once you start moving, you'll find abundance on your journey. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to episode three. Wait, no. Back up.